Welcome back to the Ask Different Podcast, an unofficial podcast created by members of the Ask Different community about Apple and related technologies. This is episode number 7, recorded June 12, 2011. I'm Kyle Cronin, and with me as always is Jason Salas. Jason, how is Lion? It's looking just as wonderful as it did last week. Next month can't come soon enough. Yes, I completely agree, and I really envy people that are Mac developers, and they get the the, the preview versions of macOS. So uh, it's 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 made me consider multiple times paying the hundred dollars just so I can get into the program. Oh, what it would be like to have such disposable income. Yes, yes, that is the problem. You know, if I had or income at all, in some people's case, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If I had a hundred to drop on it. Uh, you know, I might, but uh, I'll just have to wait till next month, and, uh, mm-hmm. and and hopefully it'll be you know stable and ready and, and beautiful. And uh, well, I've uh, there's I am also joined today with my other co-host uh, Nathan Greenstein. Uh, Nathan, how is iOS five? Oh, it's great. My imaginary iPhone is just wonderful now. <laughs> oh, so you're an imaginary iPhone, imaginary developer, right? Ah, so you've installed the imaginary <laughs> beta. Well, that's. Mm-hmm. Well, I imagine that that's uh, that's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing. Yeah. So, how do you like the uh, the imaginary uh, notifications list? Oh, it's it's wonderful. No more pop ups. Yeah. Imaginary pop ups. Yeah, I'd imagine that's that's the case. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of been it's kind of been a crazy week. Uh, our our last show was. Literally, what what we had done is we typically record we record on Saturdays. Uh, today's actually Sunday, but usually we record on Saturdays, and then we um, sort of edit the show and prepare the show notes and get it ready for uh, basically Monday night slash Tuesday morning. And what we discovered was that uh, last week um, Tuesday morning would be the day after the WWDC keynote, and we would be recording before the keynote. And we didn't, you know, we didn't want to have, you know, WWDC projections or uh, predictions or 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 not talk about WWDC at all. So what we decided to do is we wanted to wait until after the keynote, and then Jason and I, uh, unfortunately, Nathan was not available, uh, but but Jason and I would give them, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Jason and I uh, quickly recorded the podcast. Uh, quickly, of course, you know, it's, it's a two-hour podcast, but you know. <laughs> just as quick as it's been any other time so far. Yeah, well, well, that was a record length, but uh, and and today's, I promise, will be much shorter. Um, but we, you know, we really wanted to get everything in the podcast, but that was just exhausting uh, because trying to follow along with the keynote, you know, um, you, you've got tons of tabs open. You know, uh, there was. Uh, this is my next, which was you know doing little captions and taking all all these, you know really good photos. I was following. Um, there was a Twit feed where there was they basically found someone that had a sort of a live stream of it, uh, and when they when they sort of lost that, I, there was actually another one that I found on UStream and I was trying to watch that, and so um, there was that, and then there was also um, a, a very well um, I'd say maybe. 10 to well i think it was closer to 15 people chatting on the ask different chat in the in the the ask different chat room uh, while wwdc was going on sort of talking about the announcements and and uh making making their own comments and i was sort of keeping up with that seeing what the what the community was saying about all the stuff that was being announced and 
Jason, did you have any? Uh, did what were what were your experiences on that day? It's just funny to re to rethink everything that happened between all of the thoughts that came flooding through my mind whenever a particular feature or what have you was being announced, and then just the thought of also just how exhausting it was to take in so much information at the same time. And I mean, I believe that this is a lot of what happened when I was still in school too. Is that there's so much stuff being thrown at you, and your brain is having to file it away and organize it, and you do that for seven hours out of a day. It's it's intense. It's very very tough to do. And then what made it even more jarring was when these bootleg feeds, for lack of a better term, would go down and either uh, either I would refresh the page and hoping that it was just my connection wonking out. Um, and that would, in the case of Ustream, lead to that really obnoxiously loud 30-second pre-roll with some cleaning product that I probably have under a sink somewhere in this house or what have you. Uh, or an air freshener that I don't use because the hiss usually scares my cats. Uh, but it was it was just really it was very intense for the whole two hours, and then to keep it all very active in memory, and then record for yet another two hours afterwards. Exactly as I said at the end of the show, the day was already over by the time that we wrapped everything up. Uh, I think I got up around nine something local time because that's when I heard that the Twit coverage was going to be starting, and then the keynote started at ten o'clock my time. No, 11 o'clock my time, but all of that time uh, getting prepared and starting anything that I was going to do to take notes, and then exactly as you said, Kyle, interacting with uh, chat participants as well, It's uh, <laughs> it was five hours at least, just your brain never being able to settle down and rest because you're just taking all of this stuff in and then trying to retain it before recording it. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it was, it, yeah, it really was overwhelming, and uh I mean, I don't get me wrong. I I love it. It's one of my favorite days of the year. <laughs> I know that's kind of kind of sounds a little bad, but uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it is really. Um, and and seeing all that stuff being announced, but you know, at the same time, you know, especially when you want to record a podcast about it, you have to make sure that you you're not glossing over any any particular details. So you have to make sure that you know you've basically gotten everything that they've talked about. Mm. Um, so so yeah so 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 Nathan um what what class was going on well while we were busy finding out all the cool stuff at WWDC oh probably like three different periods but I, I can say that the drive home from school on Friday was a very long one D- trying to uh, get home and get an internet connection to watch the keynote or at least read some coverage of it I don't have a laptop at school or anything so I can't uh... right I don't know why Apple decided not to stream this keynote. It just it doesn't make any sense because, I mean, obviously, I, I'm, I'm wondering if they wanted to avoid a uh, an internet connection problem like they had in one of the recent keynotes they did. Well, I think the reason why they did why they streamed, I think, I think they streamed their the fall event last year after last year's WWDC had those uh, wireless connection problems. Um, so oh, okay. I, I think it was actually. Um, partially a, a response to that um, to basically uh, prevent all those journalists and stuff in the room from uh, having to stream it themselves and you know just to be able to provide a high quality stream for for other people to, to see 
Well, and I think it also has something to do with the fact that any journalist that any journalistic company that is allowed to record the stream has an embargo on them in order to uh, prevent them from releasing it to the public. And then WWDC, as a development conference, and per the terms of their SDK, uh, technically the entire the entirety of WWDC is an NDA signed event. Um, it's they post their own media afterwards, but the emphasis there is afterwards. They know that they're not going to be able to do to stop anything from the general coverage uh, from getting out. So they kind of give a pass to the opening keynote and the opening notes for everybody, the details that they want to see to get excited about. But the uh, the workshops and the classes and uh, the rest of the speaking engagements are all NDA covered. And technically, the news that we get from there is somebody breaking the legal contract yeah all those screenshots and walkthroughs that you see on various websites uh that are going through the various minutiae of ios 5 and, and lion um those people you know they found someone that's a developer that was comfortable enough with breaking their nda and mm-hmm. and they decided to publish it and it's sort of been going around a little bit that apparently apple is not doing anything about it um and how all these people that are actually following the terms of the NDA are feeling a little slighted that there's, you know, all, like all, all journalists like Macworld that, that do uh, explicitly follow the NDA out of respect for Apple uh, are, are feeling kind of slighted that Apple is doing nothing to prevent uh, any other sites from, from from posting this information. At the same time, what can you do? You take... You you go target uh, Boy Genius Report, Mac Rumors, uh, I don't know, TUAW, Patently Apple. I guess Engadget did do it pretty blatantly because they have their own, uh, very obviously their own devices running iOS 5, screenshots, videos, walkthroughs, reactions, and the whole the whole gamut of things. Um, what, what can they do? Request a takedown for all of these people as if, you know, we know how much that does to actually deter news from making it to the public eye. Yeah, I'm. I mean, there there used to be days. Uh, well, years ago, it used to be like um, a very serious thing where you know if you did post stuff like this, then you would get an Apple cease and desist thing, and there would even be uh, things where like journalists would would post something, and you know it, even the journalists themselves were not explicitly covered by an agreement that they signed, like an NDA, and that they would still get Apple cease and desist notices due to like. Um, uh, trade secrets and stuff like that so it's kind of funny because the thing that's running around my mind right now is what it's funny that we're having this conversation right now considering that we are in a post gizmodo iphone in the bar world right now to the best of my knowledge gizmodo and by extension of course gawker is still uh never extended an invitation to apple press conferences last i knew that was still the case um but it's a uh, it, it's quite a turn of events considering the fallout from just before the iphone 4's announcement and release yeah, if uh, if you get uh, blacklisted, you know, I don't think I, I'm pretty sure you don't ever return. Um, <laughs> there was one year when Leo Laporte was actually standing in the the audience for uh, a keynote of, of some sort of Apple's, <laughs> and he was holding up his his MacBook so that the the video camera was pointing towards the stage, and he was streaming it to his his Twit um, listeners or. Or, or, or watchers or whatever you want to you, you want to call it but um after that 
I believe that uh, he was ne- he, he's never been asked to return. <laughs> yeah, he's he was talking on uh, Mac Break Weekly the week after that that he felt so funny doing it because he swore that the Jobs was just glaring over at him, you know, burning a burning a hole through his head, metaphorically speaking. Um, and he there's actually if you watch the keynote from the I don't remember what event that was. I don't believe it was iOS four. It should not have been. It should not have been WWDC. It should have been one of their other. Uh, events just kind of whenever they had announced it um the keynote events video actually the camera actually caught him and there's a picture that's been floating around with uh leo sitting down with this macbook in his lap with the screen pointed towards the stage because obviously that's the orientation of the camera and i think he was also doing something weird with his iphone as well and yeah since then they've never received an invitation to any further events he generally says he's not he's not bothered with it because as a journalist he doesn't want to sign ndas so he wants to have no you know uh, no retaliation against things that he announces from whatever source he gets them uh, he gets them from but yeah, it's interesting. Over the last year and a half, the fallout that the, that Apple and media has uh, specific media outlets have gone through, and now iOS five is uh probably pretty much free reign at the point for anything that actually uh that actually has made it into the release so far. Yeah, the development release. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Apple's got the the beta version in the hands of you know literally thousands of developers. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is pay a hundred dollars and you get access to it. So it's not some big secret at all. So, mm-hmm. um, it is it is actually a little strange that it, you know they they're still insisting on an NDA. Um, I can understand it for the WWDC sessions because I know a lot of that sort of uh, deals with. Uh, like APIs and, and, and sort of lower level functionality of the operating system that uh, would not otherwise, you know, be apparent to people that just download and install the uh, the, the latest uh, the the beta version, uh, like like journalists and stuff. But uh, yeah, um, like you said earlier, how you know, next month can't come soon enough. Uh, I have to say that fall can't come soon enough. Um, <laughs> Christmas can't come soon enough because by that time we'll probably on we'll probably be on the first revision of all of these releases too, and it'll get it'll have all of the polish we were hoping for, and uh, well we'll keep going on the way that software development and releases do. Yeah, I wonder if there's going to be uh, um, well I, I I'm pretty sure there's going to be a new iPhone or whatever in September, but uh, it's sort that of interesting. Be. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's sort of interesting to think you know exactly what what it might be um i don't really want to get uh, too off topic uh, right now but uh yeah i'm, will I'm it assume- be the iphone 5 or will it be the iphone 4gs or will it be something new entirely is it something new entirely maybe the iphone i4 okay sorry that, that was just bad yeah that was yeah <laughs> <laughs> to go along with i message yeah i have to say i i do like the um, you know, iPhone four, and I wish that the next one was iPhone five. Um, just like how I like how Microsoft switched from the crazy names to you know Windows seven, and now the next one is supposedly going to be Windows eight. Code uh, name. <laughs> code yeah, yeah, they have That's said that it, Windows eight is a code name of all things. So where was I think ninety five was Seattle? I think Chicago has been a code name in there too. And where did interesting code names go? We're calling this eight. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Took our team forever to come up with that name? one. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what I thought when I when I found when I heard that terminology specifically. Yeah, I think I think XP was was Whistler, and then uh, Vista was Longhorn. Actually, when... and before that, it, it was it was originally Palladium, and all the DRM cries happened. And then when they when the developer approached, uh, <laughs> I almost said Steve Jobs. Wow, uh, when the developer approached Bill Gates and said that this is all unsustainable, we need to scrap it and start all over again. And they really they redid everything that ultimately became Vista. That's when they recodenamed it to Longhorn. Oh, okay. Well, that's that that OS was in development for so long that uh, I'm sure it's had ten code names. But <laughs> I mean, I, I I'm I, I'm a fan of Apple, but I you know I did like some of the ideas that Microsoft had in the earlier versions of Longhorn. I I, I used to go into uh, Paul Thorot's uh, Windows Super Site, or I'm not sure if I'm I'm saying that correctly, but Win uh, Super Site, Win yeah, Super yeah, Win, Win Super Site, um, and and see like the screenshots of of the Longhorn builds and you know they had some some interesting stuff in there and it's kind of disappointing that you know Windows Vista turned out as bad as it did because it <laughs> had a lot of promise and the the weirder part in all that is that WinFS is still not here and probably may not be the fact that they haven't done any kind of a different file system and they've just been piggybacking NTFS for this long they're yeah. not even piggybacking just continuing to use it for this long well, I think what it, what it is is Microsoft is a little too tied down by their sort of legacy um, support and legacy requirements and the ability for you to run an application that was written 20 years ago on the latest and greatest version of Windows. And I think if they if they sort of broke with that and they said, well, you know, here's, here's a clean start, um, then they could uh, do some of these things like WinFS uh, a lot more easily than than trying to do, you know, this sort of futuristic uh, database-like file system, but also have uh, the file system hooks necessary to support those really, really old 16-bit applications. And that's what people say have really propelled Apple so far, is that in the span of, uh, was either four or five years, that not only did they change processor architecture, but they completely dropped their legacy one. And 10.6 was basically the absolute cleanup of getting rid of all of, uh, most all of that stuff. Unfortunately, Rosetta is still around for things that absolutely have to have it. But PPC got dropped in uh, 09, I believe. And then the first ones that came out were either 04 or 05. So yeah, the span of about five years, they completely changed their hardware architecture and then completely dropped support for it. Yeah, uh, I've actually heard that uh, Lion requires a 64-bit uh, processor that, right because the core duos and only the core two duo the core duos don't work only the core two duos and above do basically the core two duos and then the i3 i5 and i7s only yeah it's pretty crazy that you know there are intel Macs that are only a few years old well i guess they're probably about five years old by now but same time spin yeah but that you know they're they're not able to run the latest version of, of mac os 10 um and that's kind of sad because one of the things I really liked about Apple stuff was how long they supported their old hardware with the latest operating systems. I mean, I remember being able to run macOS 10.4 on an old iMac G3, um, <laughs> and and the, the G I think it came out in either 97 or 98, and uh, 10.4 came out in what 04, 04, 05, something like that. Uh, I mean, that's a span of at least uh, seven years. Yeah. So, and and now we're we're sort of narrowing it down to um, 
about about four years maximum, and it's even less with with iOS devices. Um, oh, and that's that's more symptomatic of the fact that we've made such specific physical strides as we had. That's that's because architecture has changed so drastically in the last four or five year time span. Every time that we look at it, again, Apple changed uh, architecture entirely from PPC to Intel, uh, and now they're uh, they're enforcing 64-bit across the board, which has significant advantages for just about everybody. Um, what What is interesting in this regard is that a lot of applications that have been written, maybe ones that don't really have to drill down into esoteric features for the sake of optimizations or what have you, but uh, Handbrake links to this audio conversion application called it's like it's like zero SX or something like that, and the web page lists that it was written and released for ten zero or ten one, and it the website looks like it's never been updated since the release of ten zero or ten one, and I was using it just three weeks ago, and functionally it didn't seem to have any problems whatsoever. Uh, granted, it's a pretty simple thing to do, especially with the built-in core audio that's been uh, the framework that's been with the entirety of the OS ten series, but. And software is still compatible for great periods of time as long as it's written appropriately. Um, I, I'm sure Handbrake must have, you know, they must have modified the code in some capacity because, you know, if it was a binary, um, Rosetta, I, I don't even think, I think you have to install the Rosetta um, on on Snow Leopard. You, it's like it's not de- installed by default. And, and even if you do... Um, for for things like hardware access and, and and core audio and stuff like that, it just seems kind of odd that that, that something written you know for for ten point zero or ten point one would actually work. So um, I'm gonna have to check that out. But uh, I think what it's more likely is that it was probably some sort of uh, library that uh, that Handbrake was able to um, just recompile for the the Intel architecture. Possibly, I know I've installed Rosetta for one potentially just one application i'm not even sure which one it is at this point i know i've done it pretty early into any reinstall of the operating system um and i don't i don't know the details of everything that rosetta is doing but it's i i could be mistaken because it has been quite a few weeks at this point i'm just fairly certain that all of the details on the page said that the software was incredibly old but still did exactly what i needed it to do that's not good that's not always going to be the case yeah, uh, I wonder if Lion will even support uh, Rosetta at all. I wouldn't be surprised if they uh, completely dropped any PowerPC support and said, look, you know, if you have uh, uh, a PowerPC application, use Snow Leopard, but we won't support it on Mac- on the latest version of OS X anymore. Yeah, especially because there were obviously no 64-bit PowerPC processors in the uh, Apple world. Yeah. Well, there were there were a few other things that sort of came out from the keynote. Uh, let's see, and and well, didn't necessarily come out from the keynote, but have subsequently come out on Apple.com. Uh, they've got those big lists of features for. Uh, I've seen the one for Lion, and I'm pretty sure I saw the one for iOS, but um, I can't <laughs> I can't seem to find it right now. Um, but one of them for Lion was that uh, that the address book app and then the contacts app. Um, for for Lion and then for for iOS, have a lot more fields for uh, social networks. So you got like Facebook, uh, Flickr, you got LinkedIn and MySpace. Um, it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I'm not sure if this uh, sort of 
means that that these features uh, that these rather these services are integrated into address book but it, it is interesting that there are now at least fields for people to put that sort of information in and, and associate it with contacts and actually built in ones and not just a custom label named such right yeah does, does myspace actually have any kind of an ios application you know, I don't know. Um, I, I never, I never use MySpace, <laughs> and I don't think anyone actually does anymore. <laughs> yeah, because the thing that I just realized is that Facebook, Flickr, and LinkedIn all do, and I have all three of them. So, in order to expose the, some additional part of the SDK that has a lot more, you know, all, all of these social networking services have a let us connect to your email account and find all your friends for you. Well, now it's a push instead of a pull system with. Uh, with no external authentication necessary, because if your address books is storing the information of these individuals, then the applications can just kind of read this in and offer the connection capability to you right out of the gate, or whenever you you know whenever you go to search for new people. That's actually very creepy. Um... <laughs> <laughs> but it's it'll be an option, I'm sure. You have to grant privilege in order for the OS to actually say, oh, "Okay, Facebook app, you can have this." Actually, I don't um, think it is. I think the contact, uh, the 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 contacts list or the address book is one of those things that uh, applications are, you know, allowed to access without any sort of explicit uh, authorization from the user. Hmm. But whether or not it gets into the app store is up to Apple. Well, I I've seen apps on the uh, on the app store that like alternative dialers for example you know you can get a dialer uh, a different different sorts of dialers and they're on the app store and they sure, will... sure, but if apple thinks it's malicious like it's or or even people would think it's creepy like up to, pushing your uh your friends without asking they may not like that idea but yeah i'm just um i'm ho- hopefully apple is aware of of like private api calls like that and you know if if there isn't sort of a clear uh, analog in the in the interface that's presented to the user, if if the application is sort of surreptitiously retrieving all the address book contact information, then it's you know hopefully Apple is rejecting those applications for, for doing so. But there's th- an application there's an application called Friends by Taptivate, uh, which I have, which I had hoped for a lot more out of, and the main reason why was essentially that I wanted Friends to sync information back to my address book and I wanted them to put these appropriately named fields in there so that I could reference account names for uh, I think the ones that I have linked into it are Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn and it also offers um, it offers MySpace and I think even like Instapaper of all things. There, there, there was a fifth service. I'm not entirely sure which one it is. And I was, I was really hoping that when I got this it would populate my address book with uh, whether it be links to their profiles or just the names of the accounts with respect to the specific services um, and then continue to read it in afterwards. But instead, what, is it, what it does is it appears to just maintain its own database, mapping the server-side account information and my local contact store, but it's useless external to the Friends application itself. I don't know if that's by technical limitation, by SDK limitation, or if that was a design choice by Taptivate. I'm thinking it's probably a design choice. You know, they want you using their app. You know, they want to sort of. Uh, they don't see themselves as just a uh, um, a data intermediary. They see themselves as like the destination for all your friends' information. You know, yeah. you will go that, to them. 
And that actually is the point of the app is that you have this one application that shows all of the incoming, all of the, the home screen shows the directed incoming information like Twitter at replies and Facebook messages and posts on your wall. Um, and uh, LinkedIn generally shows, you know, like new requests, things explicitly to you. And then you can also send out from there too. So yeah, obviously that argument does make quite a bit of sense. I've even heard that um, uh, due to a lot of limitations in uh, like basically the sandboxing for for apps that one of the ways that applications sort of get around uh, you know, get around that sandbox and are able to share information with each other is uh, through the address book and they like create like bogus contacts and they, they basically share information through that and I'm not sure why they don't necessarily appear uh, to the user, um, but I've I've definitely heard that that's that's a trick that you can use to sort of uh, share information between between applications. Interesting. I yep. was thinking that you might say something about like cra- uh, specifically crafted URLs because you can you can stuff a bunch of data into a URL, and especially considering that applications can be invoked with the protocol uh, instead of as a like. There are applications that respond to specific URLs. Say, for example, when the system sees HTTP blah, maps.google.com, it takes that request and shells it into the Maps application. And then there are other things like Twitter clients predominantly all register for Twitter colon uh, forward slash forward slash. And then they have a specific address element that you can put in there to go to the home screen or your at replies or your direct messages or even a specific list or even a specific user. Um, and that's that, that would seem to be, that would seem to me to be another possibility is that they can stuff data, crafted data into the URL address and direct it specifically at that application. Yeah. That is also, that is potentially another way that they, that they can do that. Uh, do you know how I'm curious, how does iOS handle having uh, multiple applications that can handle, um, a certain type of type of protocol with the URL. It's not something I've come across yet uh, because I only have Echophone, which uh, responds to the Twitter handler, and to the best of my knowledge, I don't have any duplicates. I've wondered. I know. I know that there's a problem with that, especially because um, whenever you're reading something in mail and you click on an attachment and it says open in a given application it doesn't offer you a list and it doesn't uh it doesn't offer a small list or a drop down list of all of the files that handle it so there was a time when i believe i got a pages document or something to that effect and the for whatever reason dropbox associated with it and so the open action was bound to view in dropbox well that doesn't do anything Unfortunately, Dropbox Dropbox iOS will open uh, Microsoft Office apps. Uh, I'm sorry, Microsoft Office documents, but not iWork documents for whatever reason. And it was really frustrating because, to the best of my knowledge, when it's in Dropbox, there's really no easy way to get it to get a document out to another application that it doesn't understand how. And it, again, it, with there's, since there's no built-in viewer for it, it was just hanging out there, and I couldn't do anything with it. It's pretty bizarre that they would basically announce that they can uh, support uh, opening a specific file and not be able to open it. Maybe they before pages for iPhone, they just called it like a document or something, or at least that's what the iPhone saw it as. Because I know on Mac OS X, I don't know if this applies to iOS or not, but on Mac OS X, I know if there's some file that it just the system just completely doesn't recognize, there's no app that's registered itself as being able to 
well, actually, let me rephrase that. If there's a file that it doesn't recognize and so it can't assign a specific type to, it'll just call it a document. Yep. And so then there are, like, any text editor declares that it can open a document, and there are various uh, various apps that just decide to declare that they can open a generic document. So I'm wondering if Dropbox did something similar and the iPhone just interpreted the pages. It's funny because as... completely randomly I actually read about this the other day, and apparently the answer is that Dropbox says that it can handle anything. And... Oh. To whatever extent iOS has basically priority handlers, for whatever reason, Dropbox's priority was higher than iWorks. Uh, in this case, perhaps the pages specifically. Yeah, that would make sense. And the reason why Dropbox says it can handle anything is not necessarily because it can in the opening and viewing sense, but in the sense that it it has to in order to actually be allowed to import documents of any type. Yeah, just sort of allow them the ability to store it. Uh, yeah. And store yeah. it and get and view it on another device, on a computer. Right. Yeah, another thing that sort of came out of, um, you know, this, the, it was it was a mention during the uh, the keynote, but it, it, very briefly, and I think we, we also were similarly brief in our, in our discussion of it on our last podcast, but that's the iPad 2's AirPlay mirroring. And I, th- I actually, I actually remember exactly what happened um so over the course of the keynote the theme of the keynote was the nine or ten big features ten in the case of lion and ios and the nine in the case of icloud and but each series also had a short list or additional couple of things when they had the slides up that had kind of like that feature mind map where the logo of the software is in the middle of the screen and the varying sizes and uh, white color strength of text was littered around the place. And when that was when that slide was up there, they touched very, very briefly. They actually called out talking about wireless mirroring for the iPad 2. Yeah, well, well, basically, um, this is actually, I think, Apple, Apple considers this to be one of the big features of iOS 5. Uh, you can tell because when you go to the iOS 5 site, it's one of the features that's talked about in the video, and it's one of the features that's sort of um, presented on the on the page along with you know the other stuff like the reminders app and updates to the camera and, and the photo roll and all that stuff. So, um, but I think I just sort of want to you want to talk about on touch upon yeah, potential future implications for this because. Uh, what this does is this basically allows you to transform your iPad into, uh, say, for example, you're, you know, you, you hook up an Apple TV to a projector in a meeting and then you have a uh, keynote on your iPad. Well, you can just flip through the slides and they'll and it, it'll, it's, it, it acts as a, as a presentation thing. Or you could play a game on your iPad, and instead of you know using the screen, you can just look at your TV. And so your iPad basically acts as sort of a an intelligent kind of really big controller surface. Have you guys ever actually have you seen how Keynote works when you have it attached to an external display? Yeah, the uh, the Mac OS X version. No, well, that too, oh. that's another very unknown feature, but I mean Keynote iOS. Uh, basically, it works in the same way. Keynote, Keynote, when you have multiple screens, is ridiculously intelligent. As Nathan just said, if you have a second monitor uh, on your desktop using Keynote, great. You the second screen 
um, I believe the second screen gets the presentation. And the primary yeah. screen acts as the private information to the presenter, where it shows the presentation duration, it shows a small little thumbnail roll of the slides on the left-hand side, and then will large type all of your notes in front of you. The iPad version of Keynote works exactly the same way, where if you use before the before the iPad 2 came out if you had the external VGA connector and would plug it into a monitor the monitor would get the presentation and then exactly the same thing you had all control on your iPad so you could swipe between slides or even skip to a specific one it was in the list um, your presentation notes after they updated to actually support them were, uh, were offered to you on that screen and also the iPad has a digital laser pointer where you, if you hold your finger on the screen for a second, the presentation screen gets this big red laser pointer looking beam. And you can use it to call out a specific side of the screen, circle, underline, whatever. It, it's, it's ridiculously cool and I surprisingly have never seen it in use and I've only used it myself once. But it is effective. And with this feature of the air of the uh, air display wireless mirroring, uh, and of course the HDMI cable that you can use for mirroring in the iPad 2, the actual ability to interconnect to things nowadays that don't have a VGA port anymore just went up drastically. And exactly as you said, buy a little Apple TV, stick it in the TV in a conference room, and you have a beautiful presentation source. Yeah, in fact, I've I've actually seen uh, questions to this effect on Ask Different. Um, like, how do I, you know, use AirPlay to get, you know, my presentation on on a projector or something like that? And up until now, the answer has been, well, you can't, you know, mm -hmm. it, you have to use a cable. Um, but now it seems that uh, Apple has really sort of, it, when they said they're going to cut the cable, they didn't just mean the, the cable uh, to connect iOS devices to the computer, but they also meant, you know, your <laughs> your video cables and stuff like that. And I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future we we, we saw uh, an iOS device ship that did not have a connector of any kind, and it relied on like uh, Bluetooth to connect to accessories, and it relied on Wi-Fi to sync to your com your computer over the network into the the iCloud, and you you know maybe even use inductive charging as opposed to using an actual physical cable. I was hoping you were going to say something about charging because I was going to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I've got this figured out, Jason. Yeah. yeah. Apple's, I believe App you. I trust you. Apple's slowly getting rid of all of these things. You know, first it was, you know, uh, the, uh, I don't know, the, the well, mouse. Yeah, first, you know, the first it was the Mac. Well, actually, yeah, that's a really good point is the mouse. I think of it this way. Exactly as they said when they debuted iCloud. Uh, the, and they relegated the Mac and the PC to just another device. Everything's just a device. There is the ability to intermingle it in certain ways, but everything is just a device, and they'll have the external connectivity that they need to, but they don't need to be tethered for a significant portion of their functionality anymore because all of these uh, all of these appliances and computers and everything else have a amount have a very significant amount of processing power to do all of this kind of thing itself nowadays. Yeah, when they when they announced that they were sort of demoting the the Mac from being the center of the digital hub to being just a device, and then later on in the presentation when they were like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna also offer backup services for all your devices," I'm like, "Wait, does this mean the Mac too?" And unfortunately, <laughs> it didn't. But 
I think that would that would be a very powerful feature. I mean, I realize that you know they can't just give something like that away for free, but I would actually pay money to Apple for a, a Mac backup. Um, I mean, as much as I like these uh, these third party, you know, Carbonite or Mosey or whatever, um, mm-hmm. typically uh, what it is is it's you know you install the application on your computer, and you know usually it. It, you know, it might exclude certain things that you want to be included in, in the backup and and sometimes it doesn't really have um, the correct access to your your the metadata in your files so like you know even if you do a restore you might lose the color or you might lose like whether or not you wanted to keep the extension on and stuff and I'm sure that if Apple did a backup service like that that you know what you'd be able to do is you would be able to walk into an Apple store and say and, and, and open up your Mac and then it would say, "Would you like to restore from a backup?" And you punch in your your Apple ID and password, and it would load up, you know, a list of backups. You you hit OK, and then using this like super high speed connection that they have at, at the uh, at the Apple stores, it downloads and then restores a brand new Mac to exactly where you you had backed up a, a previous Mac. Did I just blow your minds? No, it, it was I, I was nodding my head the whole time you were saying that, and it's one of those things where I'm sure not all Apple stores right now, uh, Apple retail stores, have more than maybe a, uh, a couple of T1s worth, uh, maybe a little bit just slightly better than a lot of conventional home uh, home internet connections. Um, but if 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 bandwidth speeds and if bandwidth speeds in the U.S. go up and prices come down and that kind of stuff, the you know the the data centers become even more compact and disk drives are ridiculously cheap and SSDs really start rolling out, which will not only kind of n- uh, knock knock people back in their capacity, but also make it ridiculously fast. If if everything can be ridiculously fast, so that you'll take no more than an hour or two, that's a that's not an unfeasible idea and we're almost there today well if you look at um you know not not necessarily for power users but if you look at sort of what the typical mac user uh puts on their computer and what sort of takes up space you've got music from itunes you've got uh apps you've got uh photos you know and and all these things are already a part of icloud you know, you can already re-download your apps from the Mac App Store. You can, it already will sync the last thousand photos to your photo roll. And, you know, I'm sure if they charge money, they, you know, they could basically say, you know, keep all your photos in iCloud. So, um, it's and def- documents in the cloud if they expand it beyond iWork. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure that, you know, an Apple sort of based solution, you know, would, would only include Apple products, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, exactly. You know, they're already doing documents in the cloud. Uh, I mean, what I would really like to see, and this is—I actually had posted this in the Ask Different chat. Um, I think the the night before the keynote was basically a Dropbox-like service that would constantly sort of uh, synchronize um, all the files on your computer with iCloud, uh, with well, with an online sort of backup service, and then iCloud would in sort of enable certain functionality based on the kinds of files that you have. So, uh, you know, iCloud would see all of your pages and keynote and and numbers files and then it would provide synchronization to iOS devices and maybe even the ability to edit these documents in the cloud. Uh, you know, it would see your iTunes music and you know, it would 
you know, well, obviously Apple wouldn't have to store all these all these files uh, separately for each each individual person. Um, you know, so you could have a, a backup speed that was uh, a backup time that was much shorter because Apple sort of knows already about uh, know already knows all about the files. So it's it's something that you know if you sort of like squint, it's like you know you could you could see it happening, um, and. I guess the question is, you know, is this something that Apple would do? And if so, when would it be feasible? And that That is is the question. That 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 is is the the question that we can't answer right now. (laughs) Yeah. I think Apple, your comment, please. Yeah. Oh, oh, right. I'm sorry. Well, I think I I think Apple is actually working towards this, but from like a slightly different way. Um, They're working towards this. by trying to make um, your your files and, and your file system sort of less relevant or make maybe even make it completely disappear. Um, and then they could enable individual apps to synchronize all their information, all their documents, all their whatever with you know using iCloud. You already you already said one important explicit detail, but you skipped. Uh, you only implicitly stated the other one. They're catering to the vast majority of consumers, the people that don't want to think about this stuff. They're doing. They will do this for the people who can get by their daily lives with an iPad and nothing more, and or an iPhone. But for for power users, you know, for developers and for people that have a Drobo or ten dedicated to their photography and videos and whatnot, um, the people that still need MacBook Pros with the Express Card slots, um, they need to do what they need to do for all of the work that they do above and beyond. But for those people who just get by with these, you know, uh, appliances for computers, not to really, not to really. De- deride it but for these people that have this computer in a box that they can take with them anywhere um the vast majority of everything they do is going to be covered by everything that was announced last weekend or last week yeah especially in terms of ios i mean it looks like um it's it 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 does cover a lot of what people will, will do on ios uh although the fact that they're not doing full, complete, 100% backups for the iOS devices makes me a little nervous. I mean, I, I hope that they will still do those backups to iTunes, uh, you know, I, either via cable or, or Wi-Fi sync. But, you know, the idea that, you know, you would, like, for example, you lose your phone and you go to the, the AT&T store and you plug in your, your account information and then you get back, like, most of your stuff. But like you know, you go somewhere, or you're like, "Oh yeah, I I want to do this thing," and then you realize, "Oh well, that 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 thing was not actually backed up by the cloud service." You know, maybe it was some sort of data that you'd syn- synchronized over from iTunes instead of uh, using, um, in- instead of like buying it from from uh, iTunes. Uh, <laughs> you synced over like like uh, like for example a rip CD. You know something that you synced over via iTunes instead of buying it from the iTunes store. Mm-hmm. Or I'm just trying to think of other examples. The example is third-party applications. The uh, what is it called? Quick Office, I think. Uh, the DataViz documents to go. The those those Office contenders. It's pretty much going to be high media third-party applications that uh, documents to go. Uh, wow, documents in the cloud it doesn't necessarily have enough storage capacity for because as we know, doc, uh, documents in the cloud is 
predominantly bundled with iWork for synchronization, and then it's just a pretty simple key value for anything else. But it's not, hey, all of those back, all of those documents that get backed up in your iTunes, we do, it's not going to get, it's not going to get all that extraneous data as well. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I mean. And if you don't, if you do run your your iOS device completely without a PC, without ever connecting it to uh, iTunes on on a, a Mac or PC, then you're really you know you're you're sort of taking the chance that at some point you're going to lose that information. And for for a lot of people, it may not always be clear exactly what that might be. So I, I hope that there won't be problems, but it's possible that there might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so sort of getting away from, from WWDC, at least temporarily, uh, one other thing that sort of came out this, this past week was that, uh, Steve Jobs wants to essentially build a spaceship in Cupertino. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it won't actually fly, uh, but it will house 12,000 employees and it looks, it looks like a, basically a giant circle. Um, with a giant courtyard in the middle, and he presented this at the the Cupertino sort of town meeting kind of thing, um, and and basically it's Apple has sort of overgrown, uh, you know the, their needs have overgrown what they can you know reasonably house in in their existing buildings in, in Cupertino you know buildings that they own as part of the the Apple campus and apparently they're also leasing space uh and maybe lease, leasing other entire buildings that are nearby just to uh provide working spaces for all their employees so they're looking to sort of consolidate that uh they will still keep their the buildings that they own on on the Apple campus uh the the existing Apple campus but they also want to build uh this giant uh, it's a four story like almost completely glass on the outside and on the inside uh circular building um and they had purchased some land from from hp as hp was sort of contracting and and trying to sell off a lot of its property and they're basically going to transform this space where that's just a bunch of parking lots and empty office buildings into uh a lot of green green space like like with grass and and trees and I, you know, Steve. Steve mentioned apricot trees, and and uh, and and to sort of have this this sort of state of the art uh, building, you know, that can house up to twelve thousand employees. So it, it looks like a really nice building. Uh, I have to say, um, I'm really impressed with it, and kind of makes me want to work there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there was also the nine thousand uh, eight something like 8,000 of the available 9,000 parking spots being underground. So technically you could say that this building is actually five or possibly even six stories. Um, there was lots of talk about power generation being on campus with renewable resources, be that, uh, I, I don't remember if he called out a specific type. I think he said when... natural gas, which is not a renewable resource, but yeah. No, certainly not. Um, <laughs> Perhaps I'm just kind of conflating that with the we're going to add trees to this general area because there's going to be they're going to be populated all over the courtyard and then of course the maintenance of the land on their property external to the building on the the outer uh, the outer uh, outskirts of the building itself. Yeah, you know underground parking. I, I'm not sure why more companies don't do it. I'm I'm sure it's ridiculously expensive to do, 
but um, they can put they can use all of that space they just got back to have bigger bigger places bigger more offices and whatnot that more store space that they need. Yeah, you know it, it, it's always kind of annoying. Like whenever I want to go to Boston or New York or whatever, and the hardest part really is sort of figuring out um, how I'm going to like get there in terms of like driving. And and then where am I where am I gonna park? Um, like uh, these these places have fantastic uh, subway systems, but there's there's no real like reliable, safe, you know, reasonably priced places to park. And I think it'd be fantastic if you could just sort of drive right to a city, park in like a huge underground sort of parking structure, and then you know get on a train to wherever you want to go. And, like, whenever I I, I want to spend, like, multiple nights, I always try to find, like, a hotel that's sort of, like, near a park, uh, 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 a subway station so that I can walk there. But at the same time, I can also park my car at the hotel, you know. And, and yeah. So, anyway, I was also thinking about uh, the other day. I was was sort of thinking about um, the way you would launch applications on Mac OS X. And originally the way that you were supposed to launch applications on Mac OS X and, and indeed the, the only way you could launch Mac, Mac, uh, applications on Mac OS X was either through the dock or you would open up Finder and you would find the application in the applications folder. And and sort of, uh, there there was a sort of a, a whole bunch of applications um, that cropped up to make this process more efficient. So you got things like Quicksilver, and now there's also uh, Launch Launch Bar, yes, um, and uh, and Alfred, where you you know in, instead of clicking on something, you do a keyboard command, and then you type the name of the application, and then it launches the application. And this was actually uh, sort of somewhat added to Mac OS X with, I think it was Leopard, uh, where if you do command space, that launches the spotlight find thing, and then when you type the, um, if you type in uh, the name of an application or part of a name of, of an application, then um, uh, spotlight returns immediately with uh, with that application. Then you can just hit enter and launch it um, as it's sort of doing this, performing the, the rest of the search on all your other data. So I know Jason, you use a, a bunch, you use a launcher, don't you, with the third party launcher? Yeah, basically ever since, uh, even even after Spotlight rolled out in Leopard, I found Quicksilver and very quickly fell in love. And despite how powerful these uh, these launchers are for other kind of tasks, I've just never quite integrated into my workflow. So it's been control space type even as few as, few as three characters, sometimes even one if it's a very uh, prominent, significant first character, like G for pretty much any Google application. In this case, I think the default default application on G is Google Chrome since I launch it so much um, I command space type something hit enter it shows a short list of alternate candidates and it can read into uh, messages and other file names although just like spotlight it takes quite a bit longer um, but I've always I've used Quicksilver for probably two to three years and in the last six months or so when Quicksilver started not being as fast as it used to for whatever reason and the uncertainty of its future i discovered and switched to alfred pretty seamlessly do you use any sort of launcher at all nathan 
I use Quicksilver. I don't I don't use it all a whole lot because I generally just have the stuff I use a lot open at login. I've got Chrome and all my other stuff just open when I turn on the computer, so I don't really worry about that a lot. And then I really generally stay in a few main apps, and then I've got like mouse macros and keyboard macros <clears throat> bound for other common stuff like Finder Windows and and that sort of thing. So really, and I use I use um, Expose usually to to switch between apps and Command Tab, both of which I have mouse macros for. So I really. I really only use uh, LaunchBar, or I guess I used to use LaunchBar, and then they started wanting money for it, so I switched to Quicksilver. I really only use Quicksilver for an app that I don't use a lot, or if I've got my hands on the keyboard already, and that's the first thing I think to do. But yeah. generally, I've got a few applications that I stay in normally, and those either open at login or are in my dock. Yeah, I'm... My- you know, I, I, I do also, you know, have a lot of applications that sort of open at login. And, you know, to be honest, I, I very, very rarely uh, restart or log out. So typically, you know, what I start stays running until, you know, I manually quit it or, you know, yeah, or yeah, unless, unless I manually quit it. Uh, but in terms of launching, you know, I, I typically either use Spotlight. Um, I use that some of the time. Uh, but I'll, also, I, I put my applications folder in my dock. So now all I have to do is just click on that, and I've got you know the 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 grid of of icons for my applications, and I can I can easily sort of flip through those and and find an application that I want to launch. Uh, it's good if you know if you don't quite remember the name of it. Uh, sometimes you know you download a lot of applications, and and you could recognize it by its icon, but you don't really remember what it, necessarily what it was called. So so that's pretty helpful. Although it's sort of interesting that you know Apple uh, with macOS 10 Lion is sort of rethinking this process, and instead of um, instead of launching stuff from an applications folder, or I'm uh, you know instead of using one of these uh, these third party launchers, uh, they are really hoping that people will use the launch pad. I think it's called all these things with launch in the in the in the in the titles. <laughs> kind of, I might say the wrong thing. <laughs> But yeah, Launchpad is kind of iOS-like in that it presents you with a grid of icons, and you can just you know you can just click on the ones that you want. Now I don't know if that's necessarily something that I'm going to be using a whole lot because I've gotten quite comfortable with uh, you know either you know firing up something from the dock or searching for it from with uh, with Spotlight. Uh, but I think that's something that a lot of people you know probably probably would be quite comfortable with, and it it prevents people from having to sort of manually manage like where their applications are. Um, and especially with the Mac app store, they'll basically see the applications. Uh, I, I, I think, do they, do they download in the dock or do they all, do they, does it open up the launcher and then does it download? It opens the... up Launchpad. The icon animates into, it kind of flies into Launchpad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cause that's the same thing. That's the same as what it does in, uh, uh, Snow Leopard. Yeah, it's it's no, actually no. Uh, this the same. That's what it does in iOS. Uh, in Snow Leopard, it oh, actually well, goes right down like to dock, the dock. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah. Uh, here's here's kind of what here's kind of what I'm thinking about about Launchpad. Um, they Apple's put a big emphasis on the multi-touch aspect. So if you've got a laptop or if you've got a Magic Trackpad, it's some three-fingered gesture i think they said to uh 
to invoke Launchpad, and it's you know, various other gestures to to go to your folders and swipe between pages and that sort of thing. So I kind of feel like if you've got your hand on a multi-touch um, human interface device, then it could be a quick way of getting some of getting the right app open, especially if you spend the time to organize Launchpad and put what you use frequently on the first page. However, if you're someone like me who has a mouse and a keyboard that they use a lot and not a, a magic trackpad or something like that, then really, unless you want to do something like bind a, a mouse macro or a keyboard macro to Launchpad, you really have to go into your dock and open it or go into the applications folder and open it just like you would Exposé. Um, and really, I, I think it's just so much of a pain to, uh, to, to do that kind of thing. Like, if you're trying to launch an app, you basically have to launch an app to get to the launcher, which seems to defeat the purpose to me. So maybe with a multi-touch device, it would be seamless enough, but, but otherwise it seems like it is kind of counterproductive. Yeah, and I guess the big question is, you know, will this... Will this convince people that are using these third-party launchers to switch to Launchpad? And it sort of seems like, you know, based on what you're saying, Nathan, that it just, you know, it, it it can be even more inconvenient to launch it than the existing ways that the operating system provides. And it it, it doesn't really seem like something that uh, someone that, that really wants to launch something from the keyboard would, would necessarily, you know, even consider using. Or even someone who wants to launch something from the mouse, because you've got your dock. I've got probably 20 apps in my dock. I've seen docks with a good 40, and so that's <laughs> going to be way faster. Even finding it in the dock, that's going to be way faster than you know, opening up uh, Launchpad from your dock and then clicking it, or opening up Launchpad you know, with your mouse or something even, with, with a mouse button, and then clicking it. It really is, is an extra click, and if you're doing a lot of launching that's the point of the launcher to avoid that yeah i'm also concerned about like um one of the good things about the launcher is that it sort of flattens out the hierarchy of your applications folder so you know you in there you have all the applications you have all your utilities you know if you have iwork you have all that microsoft office but i'm also kind of worried about things like adobe where in addition to installing you know photoshop or whatever they install about a billion other useless applications in your utilities folder that uh, until now it you know it was perfectly reasonable to just sort of hide them away and, and not see them because um, most people very rarely open their utilities folder in their applications folder but with launchpad you know i'm, I'm almost concerned that uh you know whenever somebody installs one of these latest you know adobe things that you know all of a sudden they'll see 20 new icons <laughs> on their launchpad and I mean, yes, they can go through the manual process of sort of stacking them into a, a folder to to hide them, but that's that's something that really people shouldn't have to do. Uh, I mean, I realize this is Adobe's fault for including these applications in the first place, but you know, I, I wish that you know, in, in at least in some cases, that the launch uh, pad. <laughs> I had to catch myself there. <laughs> That the launch pad was more opt-in than like opt-out kind of. In terms of the applicate from the application's perspective, like. Yeah, so I or, wish I you yeah. know it, I almost wish that uh, the launch pad was like a um, like an extended dock where 
uh, you could just take applications and just you know and just stick them in the launch pad you know um, instead of having to have Launchpad automatically have all your applications and then you have to sort of manage them once they're there. That would kind of defeat the purpose, though, because they already have something for that. That's a folder in the dock. Well, That's I, the extension of the dock. It is, it is, but, um, you know, the, the Launchpad does provide, you know, those sort of iOS, like, like things and it does it does have like the full screen support and stuff so um i mean it, it is different enough that uh at least i would use it um and i know that once line comes out i'll i'll use the launch pad um but yeah i think i think launching applications is is one thing that uh you know just too many people just do differently that it's really impossible to come up with like one solution that everyone will be happy with and that probably means that they're not going to get rid of any of these other ways of doing it. And they're probably not going to actively deter, well, really, they can't actively deter third-party launchers because a lot of the modern ones just piggyback Spotlight and are just built to be faster. Um, I'm I'm pretty mixed on a lot of this stuff because I generally consider myself to be a predominantly keyboard person. Uh, when I really don't feel like doing anything with the mouse or the trackpad, I know the keyboard shortcuts to jump to the menu bar or the dock and it's not unreasonable for me to do so whenever I'm just trying to do things quick. Um, I don't know. A mouse has just been has just always been imperfect for me, um, to in certain extents, of course. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna paint with a keyboard, but that's why I use a launcher because it's you don't two want to paint with a mouse either. Trust me. <laughs> there have been times. There have been times, um, and I'm just kind of I leave the default icon organization like the desktop in the finder for all of my folders except for the applications folder because for some reason when I'm looking for an alphabetically sorted list of applications the applications folder probably because of the sheer size of it I am terrible in finding an application that is ordered A to Z left to right in rows so A to you know C in the first column and D to G in the second uh, I'm sorry uh, A to C in the first row and D to G in the second row etc 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 so that just the applications folder is explicitly set as a detail view, as a standard top-to-bottom list. And even then, it really sucks to scroll around and find the application. And whenever whenever I find myself scrolling around in there, I think, why aren't I just using the keyboard and typing the name of it anyways? And it's also, the f- uh, finder is actually a little bit slower to just type out the name as well. Um, and then there's the browsing into the applications folder, but I digress. Um, Launchpad seems like it might kind of break down for me because... You're going to have more screen real estate to have a humongous grid of icons, but the icons might also be a little bit too small to really be discernible at certain times for people that have a have a noisy, have a very particularly busy icon. Um, from the screenshots, it looks fairly small for some reason, and I think it's really going to break down, and as many, for, for me, of course, and especially with people that, do have a ton of applications they're probably going to be swiping across i don't know i wouldn't be surprised if i turned it on and saw that i had three or four pages worth of applications in launchpad uh launchpad yeah yeah i mean i I definitely think you know just due to the nature of the mac that you know people would have even more applications on there than they would on their ios devices but i don't know you know they're i think 
maybe maybe with the app, the Mac App Store, then we will see sort of the uh, you know oh it's a two dollar app, might as well buy it, you know, have some fun, and then people will just like literally have like you know hundreds <laughs> of apps on their Mac because there's there's nothing preventing them from there's there's no cap essentially uh, on how many apps you can possibly have on there, unless. I, I don't know if Launchpad does have a, a cap. That that'd be something to find out. Yeah, they've never really explicitly shown actually paging or scrolling or anything of the sort. My finder in the applications folder says 170 items, uh, and a lot of those I can see right off the bat. A lot of things like Adobe, Optana, and Amazon are already folded. Uh, are, have a folder and there's numerous application bundles inside of those so if launchpad is working the way that we think it is all of those applications are going to get unfolded and are just going to be presented as an ios style grid of things um we don't know if there's well we know we know there's ios style style folders because we've seen it doing that that teardown kind of look but we don't know if it's going to map to the folders that are already there or allow you to do it after the fact uh, it would make sense that it would use the folders that are already there, but uh, still, that remains that's something that remains to be seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think I think that just sort of acts as like a, a a full sort of a full circle on on launchers, and basically the the consensus is that uh, Launchpad will be useful for some people, maybe even most people, but there's just too many ways to, you know, that, that other people like to launch applications, um, that there's no real, you, you can't standardize on one way. So, uh, you know, as long as third party apps are allowed on Macs, then, you know, there's no problem. People can just, you know, choose whatever app, uh, solves the, the problem the best for them. All right, so I want to get down to our question of the week. And our our question is, uh, upgrade personal iPhone to iOS 5 beta. This was asked by Sensible uh, and was asked on June 9th. Uh, The question number is 15624. So if you want to go to the question, uh, you can either go to our show notes or you can just plug 15624 right into the search box on Ask Different and the question will pop up. And basically, uh, the question reads as follows. Um... I currently have an iPhone 4, and I'm, I'm signed up for the iOS development program, uh, meaning I can install iOS 5 on it. The problem is that I use the same phone as a personal phone. I'm wondering if it's a good idea to install a beta OS on it or not. I really like uh, being able to take advantage of some of the newer features that iOS introduces right now than having to wait until the fall. And I just, you know, I didn't know if you guys had any takes on this. Uh, Jason? Uh, I have an answer on this question already, and basically what it boils down to is that if you have a piece of hardware that you're dependent on, you do not install something on it that it has the potential of compromising stability. Uh, and the other, the, the sum up that I put in the very bottom of the answer was, if you have to ask this question, don't install it. I... It, it's going to be funny to tell this short story in that uh, when iOS 4 came out, we had a we had an up-to-date, we were actively developing applications, so we actually had a paid developer account. And I did put the iOS 4 betas on my phone starting with, I don't think I did beta 1, but I'm pretty sure I did beta 2 and above. And this was on my iPhone 3G, and it was slow. It was slow as dirt. 
I remember back then that I was using BrightKite and it was crashy as ever. And they they had also recently completely obliterated their website from being functional on an on an iPhone. They optimized it for BlackBerry and got rid of their. Uh, their iOS-style web app, so I couldn't check in anywhere, and since that was my preference at the time, that made me really sad. Um, the the <laughs> the betas were slow, and that's why I was, whenever I would have these conversations of how slow iOS 4 was when it came out, I basically just said, you have no idea where it's come from, because it was two times slower than this. Um, and it was there was a lot of applications that broke. There was a lot of weird little middle ground applications that did work, they, they would seem to work, but then when you actually tried to take advantage of the specific functionality, like it went into process, it would crash or it ultimately would just fail. And there were a lot of things that I couldn't do, and because there is no downgrade path, I was pretty well stuck. And I just had to wait for the next beta, or when the development seed finally came out, I had to wait for these to get fixed, or for some application upgrade that the developer put out that just happened to bring it more in line with the SDK to the extent that it that it could actually work properly. Um, these are these are development releases for a reason. They're used to solicit feedback on new ways of doing things. They're used for stability testing and allowing you to get your app in line with the SDK changes, so that as soon as it as soon as the seed comes out, you can make a final build, submit it to the App Store, and Apple's giving you a chance to have your app there approved and in the store with all of the new benefits the first day that it's rolled out to the general public. My uh, my take on this is actually a little different. Um, I will agree that you should never install the first beta, especially if it's if it's a device that you're relying on. But I think you know a few betas in, um, especially if you're running re- relatively recent you know hardware, like you said, you were running the yeah, iOS four on a three G, and um, that never really got good performance. But iOS <laughs> iOS. Uh, five on an iPhone four, uh, I'm sure you know has uh, at least it, it performs acceptably because you know that's the current state of the art. I mean that's what um, that's what is being developed on and against at least right now. And the iPhone four will be sold, you know, uh, that ha- you know with iOS five on it for probably another year or so. So I think you know. Um, uh, yeah, don't don't install the first beta or two, but and, and you know if, if a beta comes out, don't install it right away. Sort of see what people are saying about it. You know, it's good to sort of get you know uh, your fingers on on you know the pulse of of the the uh, iOS beta um, community and just to sort of see if there's any sort of show stopping things that you know you should avoid. But I think by and large. Um, the functionality and, and being able to play with that functionality uh, sooner rather than later, you know, that's, you know, something that I don't think many people can resist. And <laughs> I, I I don't think that the risk is especially great. Um, I mean, unless you're actually using your phone for like business stuff, you know, and you, you are absolutely relying on your phone to be, you know, 100% reliable and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I don't. Um, I wouldn't mind if I occasionally had to restart my phone or, you know, if stuff crashed or stuff like that. I mean, it might be slightly annoying, but I think I would consider that an acceptable price to pay for the awesomeness that is the latest version of, the, of iOS. <laughs> yeah, feature feature speaking, I agree. And exactly as I said last week, if I, if I had the ability to be part of a paid developer account, I would probably give in and do this myself. 
exactly as you're saying, probably not right away. Let some of the roughest edges get smoothed out uh, as the releases continue going on. But I, having personal experience, I the, the hesitation will be there. Uh, that, that's something that you need to be absolutely certain about. There were people, there were tons of questions in the developer forums when the iOS 4 betas were going on in that, you know, oh, this application I need is broken. How do I downgrade? And the first answer was always, you don't. The second answer, uh, the possibly the second and the third were occasionally the same. The fourth answer was always, well, this guy managed to do it. Here are some instructions. And it, it has to do with having a baseband, in, in the case of the iPhone or really any 3G-capable iOS device, having a baseband that's that's potentially incompatible with the rest of the firmware version because that's, that's generally when they have baseband updates. And with significant upgrades, they change them as well. Um, and it was, it was just this... 11-step hacky runaround that in, that involves um, uh, DFU and a little bit of host file trickery and just all of this, the, the magical incantation as it is, and all of the all of this significant work through uh, workflow to get through it. It's you said it best. For those that are stuck in a reliable situation in a absolutely need to work situation that. They shouldn't be messing with anything that would be that important. But if if you have the possibility to do it and you really want to get it today, then it'll be there for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, oh gosh, what was I gonna say? Nathan, Nathan, uh, I know you don't have any iOS devices, but uh, do you want to add your two cents on on this? Well, my experience with the Mac OS X pre-release versions was that I basically um, cloned my my single partition hard drive onto a giant external drive, and then repartitioned my my Mac into two partitions. So I gave myself one for the uh, stable release and one for the one for the uh, pre-release for software. And I basically, and then from the external drive, I cloned back to both partitions my uh, original system. So I and then I installed the pre-release stuff onto one. So basically I had two identical copies except that one had been upgraded to the uh pre-release software. And yeah, I mean it especially in the earlier betas it was it was buggy, it crashed, it was not all the features were there. Um I didn't I didn't run into anything that wouldn't would have made it impossible for me to use um if I really needed to, but for for some of the stuff in terms of uh in terms of just crashing so frequently and and other problems like that it just wasn't worth the new features or at least the features that were available in the beta at that point so for for a few of the betas i remember going to going back to the stable operating system which was relatively painless because it was there were very similar systems since i just cloned my my uh stuff yeah, I mean, um, when when dealing with Mac OS X, you do have the luxury of being able to switch between the two if you need to. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, I mean, if hypothetically I was an iOS 5 developer, or rather iOS developer, which, I mean, I'm not. Um, but if I was, I think I would install iOS on my, on my iPhone, even if I, you know, <laughs> even if I wasn't actually developing an app. You know what I mean? Uh, because the, some of the new features in iOS five are just so compelling 
that notifications 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 <laughs> you know actually notifications i mean i'm actually okay with the the way the notifications are on the iphone right now uh, simply because i i don't get many at all you know um i might get like a few a day and i certainly don't get uh um multiple notifications at the same time very often so uh, but that, that's probably the biggest difference between you and me is that you you've talked previously about how you do turn off a lot of the notifications and there are some applications that you just outright prevent entirely. Um, I've actually found myself doing that quite a bit lately because I have the same application on the iPod and the uh, on my iPad rather and my iPhone and that, for example, the Facebook app, I have that on both of them because occasionally I use it on either one of them. And what I did most recently is I actually shut off badges on the iPad because I'm using my iPhone more frequently because I have it on me at all times, the iPad not necessarily. Um, and I've shut off badges so that if there's a display, if there's a notification present, okay, sure, fine, I'll get to it eventually. But I really, really don't like seeing badges on applications because it invokes that response that I want to go in and read it and clear it. Um, you know what? There was actually a great piece by M.G. Siegler about that. Um, it, he just he just wrote it today, and he makes the same exact point that uh, he's really worried about um, uh, having all these applications that have all these red badges on them because you know he feels that he you know he's compelled to to read them, and he's worried that um, you know if if these notifications are no longer just on the the badges of the icons but are now on the home screen of your phone that there's there's no way to get around it you know your your phone is constantly you know bombarding you with 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 stuff that you have to sort of look at you know and the other half of it is that you have that phone by choice for your own personal needs and as you've already said you don't get very much notification traffic where i am exactly the opposite my phone is not mine it is used for work and as a matter of fact we have issue notifications going directly to our phones and those can tend to happen quite a bit uh i won't go into too much detail but two words power outage for for the entirety of of our monitoring system we have when we've had the unfortunate uh case of power issues power outage and every single thing that's being monitored can go into an error state yeah, there are some days back back before uh, I, I use an application called Prowl now to send a lot of custom notifications to us. But you know how you can only delete one SMS at a time? Take a business full of servers and make all of them error sometimes multiple notifications. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be a lot worse. Yeah. Well, anyway, I remember. I remember now what I was talking about, and that is Good. that... Uh, there are features in iOS 5 that I would really like to <laughs> like to have, uh, and I just thought of a few. Like for example, the camera. Uh, that's a huge one for me because I take a lot of pictures with my iPhone, and I would I I, I really want to be able to pull it out and be able to to get into a state where I could take a picture faster. Um, and the you know supposedly you know it is faster, and you know they are adding that thing on the on the lock screen that you can just sort of bypass the lock code and go directly into the camera app and take a picture. And of course you've got the the button. I mean that's huge, and I I can't wait to get that on my phone. And I mean that's something that I might even you know subject myself to a little instability to be able to get that a little sooner. You know, so um, so yeah, it's one of those it's it's like a give and take kind of thing. 
you know like is it is it is it something that you would be willing to sacrifice uh potential phone speed stability for um in order to in order to get and sometimes the answer might be yes and and if that's the case then go right ahead you know um i don't think anyone's i think it's very rare to have like you know data loss with these things i mean the worst case that can really happen is that you're stuck with a really lousy version that's kind of you know buggy and slow and that really all you do have to do is just wait until it gets updated and that can be annoying and that can you know it can feel like it's taken forever but at the same time um you know it's not as if you're you're going to be losing all your data so I think the capability of the iPhone has biased me quite a bit, too, because, for example, the LastPass iOS application, I will freely admit, and will probably be opening dialogue with LastPass shortly, it kind of sucks. Um, the The two biggest uh, applications that are just a burden of my usage, yet I use them so much, are QStatus, which is a quick... I use it. It does uh, Twitter and Facebook updates. I only use it for Twitter and uh, the LastPass app. Both of them basically have second-use crashes. Um, when I was when I had a long road trip last year, I was using QStatus, and I don't normally bind location to my updates because it's usually from home or from work. Um, but in the case of in the case of driving, I wanted to mark where I was, whether it had anything to do with the content or not. And Q status would crash every other time it tried to do a location lookup. And it was frustrating because I probably did it, I don't know, 20 to 30 times on the way there and back, and multiple times when I would be actually stopped in a particular area. And the LastPass application has the same exact problem. Uh, the first time I started up, and I have a, you know, a pretty powerful password that you have to enter in the first place to unlock it initially. Um, resu- the resume flow lets you just put in a custom pin code, but the first time you actually have to log into it. And I don't think it even gives you the option of saving your password. And so I'm sitting there and I'm typing in this extravagant password on the iPhone keyboard, which is, of course, even more obnoxious than a standard one. And I go to I go to a site. It does its automatic login thing. Great. I go to a second site. It does its automatic login thing. Crash. <laughs> and, and it is so frustrating because then I have to invoke it again and log in again and go back to that particular entry, tap on it, let it let the page load, get it to log in, and then go from there again. And it's it, those are like the only two apps that have such a problem for me. And as a result of it, I don't want to use them, but there's no replacements because they're – I'm sure I can find a better solution for Twitter. But for LastPass, there really is no better option right now, uh, shy of perhaps saving the passwords in the browser. But even then, I lose my entire database. I lose the ability to centralize all of it. Um, yeah, it, it's it's the stability – paired with the capability of this phone has greatly biased me to not want to deal with any sort of instability and a lot of the time that's not a problem i'm sure you you'd still be running ios 3 if they'd let you oh oh no what are you <laughs> i just said that i was running ios 4 before most I know. people were <laughs> i know so that I blows know. i read to the water I'm, right away. I'm i'm just surprised that you I... consider it stable enough for your usage you know the phone the phone aspect of it has never been problematic and like like i said tongue in cheek at the very start of my rant 
if given the opportunity, I would probably be on iOS 5 in the next couple of weeks. I I have to admit that. But my honest feeling is that if you are concerned and if you have to ask of the quality, you probably shouldn't do it. Will there, yeah, be, th- will, will there be people? Are there people? Absolutely. I think what I think the the question asker was primarily looking for someone to talk him out of it. You know, he was like, "Oh man, I really want to do this." You know, can someone really can can someone say can can someone tell me if I should do this? And he's expecting someone to say, "No, you shouldn't," because otherwise, you know. And who's the buzzkill that came <laughs> in and did that? Me. That's you. Well, that's that's why we have you around, Jason. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Yeah. You. <laughs> <laughs> the, the serial shutdown right here is that what i'm hearing <laughs> well it's just you know you're just so so grounded you know Mm-hmm. anyway yeah. so i i kind of wanted to move on to our app of the week which uh it, it, it's solver or solver I've, I've heard it either way uh it's ten dollars from the mac app store and it's basically it's um it's a calculator but I, if you look at the calculator on Windows and even the calculator on Mac OS X, what is it? It's this it's this uh, grid of buttons that looks like a physical calculator. Well, you know what? Um, a physical calculator is designed the way it is so that your fingers can hit those buttons. Well, your fingers are not going to hit the buttons on, on your Mac screen. All that's, you know, you're either going to click them, which is really hard, you know, it's not hard to do, but it's cumbersome. Or you're going to just type it in manually. And um, and Solver, uh, really, they what they do is they just sort of um, throw all that away. They just start fresh and they say, you know, if you're going to perform calculations on your Mac, what should be the way to do it? And basically, it's like it's like a document where on the left hand side you type in equations or whatever. You know, uh, you can have multiple lines and stuff like that. And on the right hand side, across from across from the individual lines, is the answer. So, you know, you could be, you know, three times two plus four, blah, 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 blah. And then on the right-hand side, you've got the answer. Then you can have multiple lines and, you know, you compare you can compare them and you can edit them. And, and it's just, it's incredibly powerful. And it gives you this, this functionality um, of being able to just manipulate these equations that you're, that you're working with. Um, I mean, it doesn't do symbolic manipulation, but it, it you know, it, it, it allows you to write a lot of different sort of calculations that you might want to do um you know just sort of on a given day uh you use it right jason you've used yeah, it yeah i've used it in times past and to <laughs> i've used it in my legendary business sense because i was having a problem with uh expenses adding up so i used solver to be able to write in all of the uh, all of the purchase order amounts and to be able to have annotations in line that tells the source of everything. So I say this much from this purchase order, this much from this purchase order, this much for this purchase order, and, well, you know, I found the one that I missed. It actually happened to be that something uh, something showed up. Two, two unique purchases wound up being the same amount, and I completely glossed over one. So as soon as I was able to put extra information that's not necessarily the calculation into the calculation uh then i was able to track down where i had gone wrong add it in very trivially and i everything finally added up and i could finally retype it all over again to the extent that we have to to file it away yeah yeah like the document aspect allows you to 
allows you to you really do create documents and you know you can save them you can open up open them ah, open them up later um like i've created one where occasionally i want to uh, calculate the pixels per inch of a given screen and you know given the vertical and horizontal resolutions you know what is the pixels pixels per inch i mean it's a fairly standard formula but you know instead of having to look it up or sort of figure it out again I've just created one of these things and you know the first thing is okay horizontal resolution next thing vertical resolution and then the third thing references the 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 values from the first two things and basically computes the pixels per inch of the screen and then it's just displayed as the third answer and I just you know anytime I need to figure out the pixels per inch of a screen I just open that up pop the information in and you're ready to go um and another great thing that Silver has is they also have iPad and iPhone apps, and you can sync to them from your from your Mac with Dropbox. So you can pop all your Silver files right into you know into a folder in your Dropbox, and you can open those up on on your iPhone or your iPad, and you can you know you can use those same sort of saved documents to to uh, do your calculations on the go. It's really quite powerful. A reusable calculation. How novel. Well, it's, you know, it's it's kind of like a midway thing between like, you know, the 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 ten button four function calculator app that Mac OS ten <laughs> provides you and something like Excel. You well, know, it's like or... it's like programming, and yeah, Excel is actually a very good way of putting it. It's like a it's like a program where instead of writing an application that asks you these questions and is defined for one specific calculation, you have the template in place and you just drop in the new values and it's already set up to do what it needs to do and there's definitely something to be said for the object nature of this so to speak in that you're not just looking at the calculation and like i've already said losing track when you have too many numbers floating around in your head and you can actually represent what exactly the calculation is doing um it's it's very helpful and it's funny that with uh, the, the fact that everybody uses a graphing calculator which has a limited extent of these capabilities in school and then they get back to their computer and they just have this this desk analog of a calculator on their screen that oh but it has a scientific mode ooh that <laughs> thing looks even more ugly but it doesn't yeah. have this ability to actually look like a powerful calculator like people spend way too much money on when they're in school I mean, it's just it's it's just crazy that uh, you know calculation is something that computers were designed to do. I mean, at their fundamental level, that's what they are. That's what they do. That's what the CPU does billions of times a second is do calculations. And it's just it seems it's so tragic to me that uh, calculation is one of the things that's so difficult to do well on a computer <laughs> until now, until Silver. Mm-hmm. So. So get it. Yes. Um, Ten dollars on the Mac App Store, six dollars for the iPad and for the iPad app, and four for the iPhone. Unfortunately, not universal for iPhone. Yeah, I was I was going to mention that. You know what? That's that's one of the things that disappoints me about it, and it, it really disappoints me that uh, for like any app that sort of sells separate iPad and and iPhone versions. I mean, I realize it's it's more work to make them, and you know, for an app that's as as good as Solver, I'm sure it's worth it. But it it seems a little nickel and dimey to me. But uh, you know, uh, that's the way it is, I guess. <laughs> and at least Solver syncs with some kind of a common backend. And Beehive does the same thing in that they charge for an iPhone version, which I used, and then uh, made a separate binary bundle for the iPad version. But I can't get those two to sync at all, and that's 
really unfortunate for something that's built around communication. Yeah, that seems kind of broken. Yeah, maybe maybe a solver will use the the iCloud uh, stuff and, and Beehive will as well. So you know the 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 key value stores that they're providing for developers. Uh I don't know. I, I I like the Dropbox stuff though because at least you know with Dropbox, you know you're you're dealing with like files instead of like these sort of etheric like key value kind of associations in the cloud that you know you can't really look at unless you're you've you know you're the developer of the app and you have a specific access to that so you know it's kind of like what information is <laughs> is 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 iCloud storing on you that you you have no way of uh <laughs> of getting out i don't know <sighs> well i think we've run out of topics jason There'll be more to talk about next week. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) All right, this has been the Ask Different Podcast. You can find us on iTunes by searching for Ask Different Podcast, or you can subscribe uh, subscribe with uh, RSS. Uh, If you use Instacast, you can also search, and and in there you can just plug in Ask Different Podcast. We pop up in there as well, so, you know, it's good for all you Instacasters out there. Uh, if you have any feedback or questions you'd like for us to answer on the show, you can email us at podcast.askdifferent.net. Uh, just to clarify about the, the email address, if you send it to podcast.askdifferent.com, we will not get it. Uh, so it has to be ask, uh, podcast.askdifferent.net. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.